The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. 2022. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We continue to open this economy slowly, but it's coming back. I want to know what the theme is going to be for Republicans. I can't imagine a more important person in Washington right now than Senator Joe Manchin. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Biden and Putin meet and the Fed decides. It's been a split-screen day here in Washington, and we have a lot to talk about this Wednesday. Thank you for joining us on Bloomberg Sound On. We begin this hour with Bloomberg's Washington Bureau Chief, Craig Gordon, who has the important takeaways from the President's summit today with Vladimir Putin. We'll talk later about that meeting with Congressman Greg Stubbe of Florida, Republican, who serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Later, we'll have insights from Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. Welcome to Bloomberg Sound On for Wednesday, June 16th, the day that we will likely be talking about for a while. And that's why we want to bring in Bloomberg Washington Bureau Chief Craig Gordon for a top-level view on things today. Craig, it's great to see you. Good to have you on the program. Sure thing. The meeting happened in Geneva. Many took note it was shorter than expected. Both leaders held separate news conferences as planned. And something that we talked about yesterday, Putin was first. Before our meeting, President Biden said that uh, it wasn't a sporting event. And I fully agree with that. What's the point of keeping score? The meeting uh, had results. It was substantive. It was concrete. And it took place in an atmosphere that was geared toward achieving results. It's Putin speaking through a translator. President Biden followed with his own news conference. I said, your generation and mine are about 10 years apart. This is not a kumbaya moment, as he used to say back in the 60s in the United States, like, let's hug and love each other. But it's clearly not in anybody's interest. Your countries are mine for us to be in a situation where we're in a new Cold War. So no kumbaya. But Craig Gordon, what happened that mattered today? The only real announcement was the agreement for both countries to return their ambassadors to their respective capitals. Otherwise, we have a lot of commitments to follow up on a lot of things, including cybersecurity, a prisoner swap. Was this meeting productive or not? Putin and Biden, actually both sides set expectations very low for this meeting, and they absolutely met those low expectations. Um, Very, very little of substance actually happened. I actually think probably the most important parts of the meeting were less about uh, getting ready to negotiate a new start agreement when that expires in 2026 or sending their ambassadors back to the country, but a chance for these two men who do know each other, Joe Biden was obviously the vice president for a long time, Mm -hmm. to kind of take the measure of each other in person. Biden himself said there's no substitute for doing this in person. I also think it was important for Biden in it's sort of almost in Biden's own mind to show up and say, look, th- that little fun you had with Donald Trump, that's over. Like you'd hack some more of our serious stuff. He gave him a list of 16, you know, key uh, infrastructure, you know, sort of uh, cyber infrastructure and said, you hack those. We're going to come at you hard. Um, you know, we're not. He raised the the, uh, the issue of Navalny, the uh, the dissident there. So I think some of this was Biden just saying, yeah, it's we're kind of resetting back to the, the kind of the more standard relationship between our two countries and no more of that coziness with Trump. I'm always fascinated by the optics on a day like this. Vladimir Putin 
in a white conference room with a blue backdrop at the podium. Joe Biden had an outdoor stage in front of beautiful Lake Geneva. It was made for TV. This is a carefully choreographed event. But it also began with some chaos for American reporters. I wonder if you can bring us behind the scenes, Craig. We're kind of pushed around by Russian security when this thing began. Was that all part of Putin's plan? You know, you always you always wonder how much of this stuff is is kind of stage managed or whatever, trying to get inside each other's heads. Even sort of world leaders, they're, they're just sort of almost like two guys on a basketball court, you know, trying to trying to work each other over, work the refs, work the crowd, work the whole thing. Yes, but that's what happened in the early days. So what would normally happen is the Russian reports would come in, the American reports come in. We, it's called a pool spray. The, the protective pool of both leaders would get to witness them, you know, the first moments together, a few small comments, uh, pleasantries, a handshake, whatever. Uh, what happened instead was that the Russian reporters sort of crowded in and then they're a they're a they're a burly bunch, um, <laughs> you know, pretty lively crew. And uh, and our reporters, including Jennifer Jacobs, our terrific White House reporter, were kind of on the outside looking in. So I think the two leaders even sort of took note of it and and had a couple comments between each other. But obviously not exactly the way you would want uh, a, a world shake summit to uh, start. It's the way it goes. And there's precedent for that, right? We, as you said, we've seen this stuff happen before. You remember Robert Gibbs threatening to, to walk out of a meeting in Copenhagen when uh, the American reporters couldn't get a question in. But let's talk uh, issues, uh, Craig, while you're here. Cybersecurity was a huge one. And we heard from both leaders on this. Maybe not a lot. Uh, Putin says far more cyber attacks come from the U.S. and Canada. He really tried to downplay this, but he says that we will work together on this. Here's what he said. I think just throwing out these insinuations at the expert level, that's, that's inappropriate. We should sit and start working. That's in the interest of the United States and the Russian Federation. In principle, we've reached agreement about that, and Russia is prepared to do it. President Biden, of course, was asked about this as well in his news conference and how he would prevent such attacks. Whether I stopped it from happening again, he knows I will take action, like we did when this last time out. So, Craig Gordon, the president says we have considerable resources to deal with this. He did not detail them. So this remains a problem. Yeah, I think one of the things that's it's sort of hard for us to cover and hard for the public to comprehend is that all of this stuff is is very spy versus spy. It all happens, you know, under cloak of darkness. You don't ever see it. People may remember when North Korea was blamed for hacking Sony pictures. I think we made the lights flicker in Pyongyang a couple times. <laughs> uh, and no one would ever, you know, admit to it. Um, but, but we all kind of know what happened there. And I think that is what Biden was saying to Putin. Look, we know you did it. You're going to deny it. But we know you did it. We know your fingerprints are all over this thing or certainly people inside your country. You have knowledge of it. You have an ability to stop it. So the next time it happens, we can make the lights flicker in Moscow or worse. Um, and I think you can assume almost anything you could think of that the United States could do in a cyber hacking, together, whether it's power grids or whether it's the lights or whether it's energy, much like the Colonial Pipeline, all of that is at our disposal. They'll never admit to doing it. We may find out about 20 years later when they write a book about it. But I think, I think Biden did want to deliver that message, having just gone through the Colonial Pipeline hack and the, the meatpacking you know, attack. Right. This is not something Joe Biden can have happening on his watch. He said we might benefit from creating a list of, of things that cannot be targeted, you know, public infrastructure and so forth. But that's not the way wars are waged, is it? 
Yeah, it's a funny thing because there are there are sort of rules of engagement, and in fact, Joe Biden used the phrase "rules of the road." Um, again, you you know, for a lot of us, again, I'm, I guess I'm old enough to remember growing up in kind of Cold War the Cold War era. But there are sort of ways these two countries engage with each other. Obviously, we are strategic rivals, military rivals, all those things. But there are certain lines that you just simply do not cross. And I think what Biden was saying to Putin is, "Hey, you're crossing some lines. The hacking got to stop." The, you know, if Navalny dies in prison, that's obviously the famous dissident who went back to Russia, yes. poisoned, you know, reportedly poisoned. If that guy dies, it's a really bad day for you and a few other sort of key things. So Biden, look, you know, Joe Biden and I, he's a little bit older than me, but he's a cold warrior. He he wants to kind of reset this to kind of staying in the guardrails, like the cyber hacking's outside the guardrails, killing dissidents, murdering dissidents outside the guardrails. Mm-hmm. Bring it back in line and we can do some business together if you don't. Get ready for some more sanctions and and worse. You mentioned Navalny. How about this prisoner swap that a lot of people thought might be announced today? There was some hope that uh, two former Marines, Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan, would be able to come home, maybe with the president, maybe shortly after, at least to have a deal. And that deal would involve two Russians jailed here in the U.S., one accused of arms dealing, the other for drug smuggling. Uh, There's no deal here. Are you surprised that nothing came out of this today? Was it a missed opportunity? I'm not. I think Joe Biden actually took a little bit of heat for this meeting. There's, a, there's actually a serious question of why you give Vladimir Putin a meeting like this. Um, Vladimir Putin got to stand next to the most powerful man in the world, shake his hand, and look like he is essentially his equal. Mm-hmm. By any objective measure, Russia is no longer the equal of the United States. It's not an economic power. It's a military power only because it's got some rusty, leaking nuclear weapons and silos in certain places, and it's a very big country. But by standing next to Putin, even just that brief amount of time, you kind of saw him on the cameras, you're kind of elevating Putin, and that is what some somebody like Vladimir Putin needs very badly. It reminds me of when Trump met with uh, Kim Jong-un over there in North Korea. That that validation, that credibility is really the, it's the takeaway for Putin. Putin doesn't need to do a prisoner exchange. Putin doesn't need to sign a big piece of paper. Putin got to stand next to the president of the United States, who, by the way, right now is pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Brand new president, obviously a different a tone than the, than the last guy that was in that office. And that's a very, very good day for Vladimir Putin. And some people, even Biden allies, questioned, are we sure we want to give Putin this gift so soon, right after the hackings, right after Navalny, right after he's kind of making some noises about a, a Crimea there. And Putin decided to go ahead with it because I do think it was he felt it was important to him to kind of reset this relationship again, these rules of the road. Yeah. But he was in no way going to give him a true takeaway or a true gift like that or give him something in exchange as much as the people you know behind those uh, those prisoners would want that to happen. What was said about the length of the meeting, it was shorter than some people thought it might be as they allowed four to five hours. Craig, you, you've covered a lot of bilaterals. These two men sat down for two hours and had a face-to-face conversation. And President Biden tried to make the point that that may not have ever happened before. Yeah, it's interesting, though, the whole the whole theatrics around this. And again, the theatrics is the word, you know, the staging, as you say, the pictures, the staging, the different things. We were told this could go four or five hours. We could do told there could be a joint press conference. Then it was going to be a one on one press conference and whatever. I'm not sure the Americans actually knew exactly what to expect from Vladimir Putin. And so they sort of again, they did sort of leave themselves a lot of wiggle room on a a longer summit. I kind of think. 
you know, to be honest, I think both of those leaders looked at each other and said, eh, we've kind of covered it. You know, we're kind of good here. I think we could probably go out and, uh, and smile for the cameras again, do our press conferences and, sure. and get out of Geneva. Yeah. Um, so I think for Joe Biden, he, he came out of it well. He came out of it sort of unscathed, a lot of worries about whether he looked tired or stumbled. None of that happened. He can come home from Europe feeling like he had a pretty good trip. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, thanks for coming along. White House staff prepares for the return of the president and the first lady flying home from Geneva, where the Biden-Putin summit took place earlier today. We're joined now on Bloomberg Sound On by Congressman Greg Stubbe, a Republican from Florida who serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and was surely paying close attention. Congressman, welcome. It's good to have you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Do you consider Russia America's enemy? Well, there's, yeah, I do. I, they're certainly not an ally in any way, shape, or form. They just hacked the colonial pipeline. Um, if you listen to the mainstream media over the last several years during the Trump administration, uh, everything was Russia collusion. You also had the testimony. I also serve on the Judiciary Committee. You have the testimony that they attempted to um, – you know, change the outcome and to influence the outcome of the 2016 election. That was the one thing that came from the Mueller report, the Mueller report. So I, I certainly don't think they're a friend of the United States. So knowing that, do you believe that this meeting should have taken place? Was it productive enough to be worthwhile? Well, it certainly wasn't productive when the only thing that Biden said at his press conference today was he, that he gave Putin a list of 16 areas of critical infrastructure that, quote, should be off limits. Um, and that statement alone demonstrates that that the president's very weak on his position with Russia. I mean, wouldn't you think that everything should be off limits in the United States for cyber attacks? Um, there's nothing that happened from the colonial pipeline cyber attack. We know for a fact it was the Russians that did that, uh, whether Putin knew or didn't know or had influence on the Russian agents that were doing that. We don't know, but we do know that it came from Russia and that the Russians attacked the colonial pipeline. Indeed. And we heard from both leaders on this uh, as Joe Biden made it clear that uh, he told Vladimir Putin that there would be consequences and that we have a greater ability to respond in terms of cyber. But I wonder if you're encouraged by the initial headline, Congressman, that our ambassadors are returning to their respective capitals. Is that not progress? That our ambassadors are returning back to their capitals? It wouldn't. It'd be progress if we're actually getting action on some of the words from the Biden administration. Um, he, he could have sanctioned Nord Stream 2, yet he gave um, Putin a win by allowing that pipeline uh, in Europe to be completed instead of sanctioning it. That's certainly a step he could have taken to combat some of the things that uh, Russia is doing. Do you think this meeting should have taken place to begin with? Look, I think I, I think anytime you can have a conversation with an adversary, a world leader, somebody that um, you may be able to have some negotiating power with, some leveraging power with. There's an incredible amount of power that comes from the United States 
mm-hmm. um, in our policy positions. And President Biden could have walked in there and said, look, if if you hack our pipelines, if you hack our things, if you do these type of activities, we're going to sanction you. And that would have a huge impact on their economy and have an, an impact on their ability to complete Nord Stream 2. And that's not what we saw from the Biden administration today. It doesn't seem sanctions have had a, a remarkable impact on the on the Putin regime uh, in the past. But I'm joined, uh, Congressman, by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan Zeno on the program today. She has a question for you. Congressman, it's good to talk to you. I noticed today that you released a, a statement um, via Twitter on your on your sort of assessment of the Geneva summit. And one of the things you said was that the only thing Biden made clear to Putin is that the U.S. will roll over for Russia under his leadership. And you were just mentioning to Joe some of the ideas you had as to what you hoped the president could do when he went there. So I wanted to ask you, if you were advising President Biden, what would you tell him to do to confront Putin more than what he did today on something specific like cyber attacks that we've seen on the colonial pipeline? What specifically would you advise him to do? Well, you would need to let Putin know that there's going to be repercussions when you hack or Russians hack any infrastructure in the United States. Instead of releasing sanctions on Nord Stream 2, which gives Putin a win, Uh, you would continue to sanction Nord Stream 2 so that they can't complete that project, which will then give them more economic power, economic prowess, and be able to influence uh, Europe by their pipeline. You could maintain Trump-era defense budgets, ensuring that our defense um, spending is at a level to ensure that we can defend the national security interests of the United States. Um, You can sanction the Navalny list, there's a there's a number of different things that you can do against the Russian regime, which would show that we're being serious against their aggression. And so you, you mentioned Nord Stream. You see that as uh, Biden being uh, weak in terms of Russia, as opposed to him being realistic with one of our most important allies, Germany, in terms of what their needs are. I don't think that Germany should de- determine the the policy of the United States. U.S. should determine the policy of the United States and what's best for the United States, not not what's best for Germany. So the decisions that should be made by the leader of the free world and the United States should be what's best for the interests of the United States, not for the interests of Germany. Congressman, I know that you are an Army veteran who served in Iraq, and I wonder how you feel about this possible prisoner swap that some were hoping for, specifically involving former U.S. Marines Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan. Should that have happened? Should we exchange prisoners? Yes. Yeah, I think if, if, if we have Americans that we can't have, we don't have the ability through our special operations or our missions to be able to go and get them, uh, if they can negotiate their return, I, I certainly would support bringing our Americans back to, to American soil. Even if it involved releasing potentially some bad guys from Russia? Well, that's a, that's a determination that you're going to have to balance. But any time that we can return uh, an American citizen to American soil, I think it's a positive thing. Congressman Greg Stubbe from Florida, we thank you so much for being with us today on Bloomberg Sound On. The Federal Reserve clearly looming large today from Washington to Wall Street after policymakers wrapped their two-day meeting. Chair Jay Powell says consumers are spending their way out of COVID. Widespread vaccinations along with unprecedented fiscal policy actions are also providing strong support to the recovery. 
Indicators of economic activity and employment have continued to strengthen. That's Powell from today's news conference that followed the decision, the announcement, and the statement on the economy. And we're joined by an expert, as mentioned, Bloomberg Fed reporter Craig Torres was on that call with Chair Powell. Welcome, Craig. It's good to have you with us on Sound On. Craig, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Thank you for being here. I'm going to get to your question that you had for Powell in just a moment. But can you start by telling us what got the market so worked up? Didn't everybody already know that rates would start rising in 2023? I think uh, there was the possibility um, that rates would rise one hike, but they rose two. Mm -hmm. And um, in the other data the Fed gave us, we see high uncertainty about inflation and um, and a rising sense of risk about inflation. So the tilt is kind of hawkish. We heard from Janet Yellen today, of course, former uh, Fed chair herself, testifying before Congress that the recent jump in inflation is something they're watching very carefully, the Biden administration, but but reiterated that any increase would be temporary. We're, we're back to this transitory inflation idea, which, of course, Chairman Powell has based policy around. But, Craig, companies are hiking prices, real inflation. Prices are rising. Does, does Powell think they'll pull those prices back when things start to cool off? So it's interesting he pointed to the lumber market today, which has cooled off, right? It's, uh, it's uh, retraced much of its yeah. gains. And um, he said he hoped, had the same hopes for used cars. Um, but really, I think the truth is, if you listen to them, they don't have a lot of visibility. And probably like you, they're wondering what's hmm. going on here. Because nobody, I don't think companies are saying this is temporary. If you read earnings calls, companies don't have a lot of visibility about when their supply for whatever is going to normalize and prices are going to fall. So I would say we saw a little bit of lost faith in, in Fed forecasting today. So in maybe Fed that was the real yeah. concern on Wall Street was the uncertainty, not the forecast. Well, so if the Fed is is more uncertain about inflation, takes inflation very seriously, I want to stress that. They view this as the one thing they can control. Um, if they're more uncertain about when these pressures resolve, they have to respond, and that's what they did. They wrote down a two-hike forecast for 2023. We're speaking on Bloomberg Sound On with Bloomberg Fed reporter Craig Torres, who was in the news conference and spoke with Chair Powell following the announcement today. I want to hear a sample of that, a portion of that, Craig. It's edited for air. This is Craig Torres speaking with Chair Powell. If I were a businessman looking at the forecast today, I would ask how and when the Fed seeks to achieve an average of 2% inflation. In other words, does the FOMC have a look-back period, or does it plan to suppress inflation in outer years? Because over the next three years, you're going to be above inflation. There's an element of discretion in it. Uh, you know, it says that we will seek to seek inflation that runs moderately above 2% for some time. And it's, it's meant to create a broad sense that we want inflation to average 2% over time. Uh, but, and that under the, old, under the old formula, under the old framework, uh, what was happening was 2% was a ceiling because all of the errors were below. You were always cut, getting back to 2%, so you were bouncing back and forth between 1.5 and 2, and we wanted them to be centered around 2. So, so that's, that's the approach 
that we're taking. So, Craig Torres, this kind of speaks to my last question, what we were already talking about, how the Fed will stay flexible on this in the coming years. Good word, flexible. But flexible and discretion are not always transparent. And Uh our job as journalists are to say, okay, you said an average. So over what time period? And they don't want to disclose that. And really, uh, well, I mean, if you say you're going to average, you should tell us when and how. Right. So is that forthcoming? or We're just not going to know until we're there. It's not forthcoming because they want to maintain maximum discretion. And uh, it's not up to me. I'm just a journalist. It's up to Congress to say, guys, uh, you got to put some uh, some rails around this. We need to know what you really mean by average. I want to ask you about an important story on the terminal today, uh, Craig, before you're gone. And that's about China. And it ties directly into inflation as China steps up a campaign to rein in commodity prices. Uh, State-owned enterprises were ordered to control risks, limit their exposure. Also going to be releasing stockpiles of metals like copper, aluminum, and zinc. Will this impact world prices? Well, these are uh, global commodities, Mm -hmm. and um, commodities do reflect global prices, not just U.S. prices. So I think it'll help um, with primary inputs. Um, But, you know, uh, Joe, you got to ship that stuff over here. And that seems to be a problem as well. (laughs) Another bottleneck, right? Like there's shortages of containers. So it's good news, but really you got to get it from A to B. Shortages of containers and oil prices that keep rising, right? Right, right. And the question becomes 70 or $80 a barrel. You want to take a stab at it? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) You're a smart guy. Uh, This is fascinating stuff. We'll be watching interest rates, of course. Where's the 10-year at the moment? We're looking at about 151 or something during this meeting. Uh, That's still not even the high that we saw over the last couple of months. I know. It's remarkable that uh, we're at 157 now. 157. Uh, Yeah, so that's a pretty big move. It's remarkable how um, bond yields have hung in. But let's remember, uh, our central bank is buying $80 billion of treasuries a month. Good point. And we keep so, hearing the word transitory, so we move forward here. Yeah, yeah. Bloomberg Fed reporter Craig Torres, many thanks uh, for being on the call and being on our program today. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. What a day. We are here to distill all of it for you on Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks for joining us. I'm joined again by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Chianzano for insights on the Biden-Putin meeting and the Fed meeting as well, for that matter. Jeannie, let's start in Geneva. Was anything real accomplished today? We heard the president say that he did what he wanted to do. Um, I think overall, his first overseas trip was remarkably successful, and I think the White House has to feel very good about that. In terms of Geneva, you know, this to me wasn't really about the summit itself. The optics were interesting, and there's an awful lot to say about that. And you talked to Craig about some of that, you know, just the fact that Putin came early and didn't keep Biden waiting like he did. He has done many other presidents. 
presidents. Um, the, you know, the, the press conferences afterwards were absolutely fascinating. We should note that the way that, you know, Putin's remarks versus Biden's remarks are being reported on Russian state, state TV are, are really, really interesting because they're claiming that Biden didn't take questions from the Russian press, whereas uh, Putin did. So, you know, remarkable optical things like that. But I do think that Biden did a, it was a good first summit, but I think the real question, as Biden himself said, is what's gonna happen next? He wants to contain Russia very, very hard to do because it's not in Vladimir Putin's interest and it's not his, what he he wants to do or has done over the last 20, 30 years he's been in power. A lot was said about how this was good for Putin just to be seen there. Right? We, hear, we heard the same thing, frankly, when former President Trump not so much met with Putin, but when he met uh, with uh, uh, Kim Jong-un in South Korea, uh, in North Korea, rather, just to be seen on a, the same stage as the president of the United States is a gift for the other leader. What was the gift for Joe Biden? What did he take away that would make this a win for him? I think for Joe Biden, and you know, I just want to go back. I have a bit of a problem with that criticism. And you're right. We absolutely always hear it from both sides. Yeah. You know, I think when you're talking about a nuclear Russia, granted, their economy is much, much smaller than ours. They may not be the superpower they were once described as now, but they are a nuclear country. They are a country that has attacked us in the last several years. I don't see any problem with meeting with the counterpart there. Um, so I always balk a little bit at that criticism. But I do think what Joe Biden was able to do today, you know, the smaller things, reestablishing the, you know, sort of a soft relationship, if you will, soft diplomacy, as they call it. So there's more communication. I think that's always important. We have the ambassadors, the very important START treaty talks, maybe some movement, some committee on cyber. But I think more importantly, he's made the case publicly that he is willing to work with Russia, but if they indeed attack us, he's going to have no choice but to re retaliate. Now, how he does that and whether that will be effective is a whole nother question. I also think it's very much in Biden's personality, right? You know, we heard, I was I was stunned to hear Putin talk about the fact that he was listening to Biden talk about his mother, you his know, Biden. mother, yeah. <laughs> talking about the same stuff we hear him talk about. So, you know, I think for Biden, it's always about those interpersonal relationships. I am not probably as convinced as Joe Biden that that will yield fruit necessarily. <laughs> but I do think for Biden, he wanted to go over there and make that case. And I also think really important that he had the Europeans, the NATO allies, this transatlantic community he's trying to reestablish, that sort of wind at his back as he went in there and met with Putin and said to the autocracies, as he calls them, around the world that democracies are uniting again and we are going to be a force to be reckoned with because of course that is what putin has been trying to do in all of these cases attacking elections and other things is to stabilize his own his own power and to tell russians that democracy is not a form of government you want to be in, embroiled in or engaged in look at what happens over there yeah no real movement on human rights uh in general genie uh, this came up both leaders spoke about it talked around it uh, Joe Biden obviously continuing to accuse Russia of abusing human rights. Vladimir Putin turned around and tried to make this about January 6th. He said, oh, you've, you've had this happen. You had people with political demands go to the Capitol. Of course, they were breaking windows and, uh, and ended up killing a couple of law enforcement officers, and it turned into a, an insurrection. Uh, 
but no real movement there. Did they cancel each other out on this issue, or is this the start of a conversation? You know, I, I didn't expect that Putin was going to turn around and say, you know, you're right, let's let Navalny, whose name he won't even say publicly, out of prison. Or, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't think, but I do think is important as part of Biden's larger strategy of countering autocracies around the world. He has got to stick up for human rights and civil rights around the world. You know, <laughs> what you're pointing to in terms of Putin's whataboutism is what we always hear from Putin. And, you know, it's important that Biden doesn't say we are perfect because we are certainly not perfect as we look at Juneteenth and other things coming down the pike. But it is important that the president of the United States stands up for civil liberties, civil rights, human rights around the world as something that we should all aspire to. And so, you know, I don't think that, you know, we're going to see much movement there particularly, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't make the case because every time he makes that case it's important for people around the world to hear that this is something we should all aspire to as we should you heard me ask uh, the congressman congressman Stubbe in the beginning of the program republican from florida and an iraq war veteran about this prisoner swap that was potentially on the table there was a lot of talk about this at least and he was even in favor of this there are two uh, former u.s marines uh, two Marine Corps veterans who are being held in Russia right now. We'll listen to what both leaders said about this in the order they spoke. Vladimir Putin. There could be some compromise that we enter into between the Russian Foreign Ministry and the U.S. State Department. They will be working on it. Now, this also came up at the very end of Joe Biden's news conference. He was actually walking away from the microphone when he turned around to answer. The families of the detained Americans came up and we discussed it. We're going to follow through with that discussion. I am, I am not going to walk away on that. Is that the next most tangible thing in, that they can do, securing the release of U.S. Marines Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan? I think it's one of the things that they can do together. I think, you know, the cybersecurity aspect and the, this committee, I think the START treaty negotiations, I think there's other things, but I do think this is a tangible. And this is something that, you know, we always, you know, welcome when they have these prisoner swaps. I do think it gives them something to talk about. I am quite frankly not surprised that it didn't come out of this meeting, but I do think that it is something that they can circle back on and that keeping them talking is always a good thing. And of course, for the families of the people involved in this, it's critically important as well. So I think we heard positive steps that this may be something going forward. We heard from the Republican National Committee uh, about the meeting today, kind of giving us a sense of what we might hear from Congressman Stubbe. They, they essentially said uh, that this was a mistake for Joe Biden to meet with Vladimir Putin, looking at the statement here. It says giving Putin a meeting is just the latest win that Joe Biden has handed Russia, including waiving sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline while he crushes U.S. energy jobs at home. It does sound a lot like what we heard from Congressman Stubbe, but how does that jive with the relationship that the Trump White House had with Russia? You know, it's hard to take that seriously. Um, you know, again, and this is something I believe strongly, talking, and I thought the same thing when Trump held his talks with various leaders around the world, and I would say it again for Biden, you do not lose uh, credibility by having a conversation. And I think it is interesting, as you look back at the Helsinki summit between Putin and Trump, that even people in his own administration have described the disastrous parts of that and the fact that President Trump stood up there 
there and said he believed Putin over his own U.S. national security figures. So I think if you talk about sort of giving away things to to Putin and Russia, I, I think it's hard to take that criticism seriously. Am I surprised they made it? No, it's the Republican National Committee. They've got to make those cases. Um, but I do think that Joe Biden handled this fairly well. But we haven't, again, you know, I sort of have to sort of see what comes out of this. And I think uh, rather Biden said that when he said the proof is going to be in the pudding. And we haven't seen that yet. Yeah. And we won't for some time. Any other day, Jeannie, we'd be talking about the Fed meeting. Uh, we had two lead stories in one day today, and this is a big deal. We're still going to be reading the tea leaves, and I suspect markets will continue reacting to this tomorrow. Uh, we heard from Janet Yellen testifying on Capitol Hill today, said the, the Biden administration is very carefully monitoring inflation, monitoring prices. They don't want to relive the 1970s. Is this the biggest domestic challenge right now, getting this economy back on track without creating inflation? I think it is absolutely the biggest task that the administration has and Congress as well. And I was struck in Yellen's testimony as she talked about the unhealthy aspects of the economy. And she focused on things like wage inequality, race inequality, climate and the labor force participation. You combine that. And I think she is trying, at least my reading of it, she is trying to make the case for Congress to go bigger and bolder on this infrastructure bill. At the same time, she claims that we can handle any inflation coming down the track. And I think one big question that remains in my mind is, does the Fed have the tools to do that? I am not convinced that they do or that huge spending of that of that, you know, what the Democrats would like in particular is is what we need at this point. But I do think she was up there as Treasury Secretary making the case. And I think you're going to see Democrats reiterating that. The markets seem to agree with you, Jeannie. If you take a look at Wall Street and interest rates today, we'll find out how we do going forward on this tomorrow on Bloomberg Sound On. Jeannie Sheehan, Zeno, thank you for being with us as ever. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We'll meet you back here tomorrow on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. And this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.